0: Welcome to the Jesus on Every Page podcast. This week I thought I'd do something a bit different. I've been asked to speak specifically about the covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. And I hope to do that and plan to do that next week. But I thought I really couldn't do that without, first of all, giving an overview of covenant theology in general. And I thought there was really no better way for me at least to do this than to read out the chapter in my book on Christ's promises, discovering Jesus in the Old Testament covenants. So that's what I'm going to do today. From time to time, like all kids, I was too sick to go to school. And as much as I hated school, being at home all day with only three channels of daytime television, yes, I'm that old, for my only company was almost as bad. One programme I did enjoy, though, was an antique show in which experts would find junk furniture in people's attics or garages, take them to their workshops, then strip, repair, repaint and recover them, before representing presenting them to their shocked owners with an indication of the increased value of the piece. In a very real sense, they had a new piece of furniture with new, higher and increasing value, and it was all done without them paying a cent. Much better than going to the mall and buying a completely new piece of furniture that decreased in value before they got it home. That difference between renewed and brand new is the gospel key to finding Christ in the Old Testament covenants. It's a key that took me a a long time to find and, and actually cost me a lot of pain when I did find it. Some years ago at fairly short notice I was asked to speak at a conference in South Africa on the Christ of the Covenants. Since I'd been completely bamboozled by covenant theology at seminary and had hardly looked at the subject since then, I really should have said, no, find someone who actually knows what he's talking about. However, I was keen to see South Africa and I had a month or so to prepare six messages, so off I went in my youthful zeal, writing out my messages on the Old Testament covenants in my study. With a week to go and the message is almost complete, I thought, hmm, I should probably send them to a senior pastor friend who had made a lifetime study of the covenants. Yes, I know, (laughs) I should probably ask him to go to South Africa instead of me. But anyway, within a few hours, my colleague sent me an alarming email. Ever the gentleman, he wrote, Dear David, we need to talk. You've portrayed all the Old Testament covenants as legal arrangements, where man does his bit and God does his bit. Are you aware that the most common historical position is that these are all covenants of grace, where God does everything and man simply receives? He pointed me to numerous persuasive verses and confessional statements, some of which I had officially subscribed to. And he then suggested I read Opama Robertson's Christ of the Covenants. That title rang a bell from seminary days. I looked behind me on the shelf and there it was. I opened it and as I read, my world fell apart. Well, actually, my world was about to be transformed for good, but all I could think about was weeks of wasted work and one week left of night and day work before South Africa. My fundamental mistake had been to take Jeremiah's promise of a new covenant to mean that all the previous covenants had been ditched and God was starting something completely new. I learned, however, that God was not promising something completely new, rather, He was going to take the old promises, the old covenant promises, and present them in a new and more valuable way. That's what Jesus was doing when he instituted the sacrament of bread and wine and said, this cup is the New Testament, or literally covenant, in my blood which is shed for you. He was deliberately and consciously fulfilling God's promises of a new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31 31-34. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, uses kinos, the word for renewed, rather than neos, something brand new. As does Luke twenty and Hebrews 8.13, the New Testament quotations of this passage. In other words, Jesus was not saying that the Old Covenant promises should be junked, and he was about to start over with a blank slate. He was saying that the Old Covenant promises were going to be presented in a new, better, and more valuable form, And he was going to do it all himself, without any contribution from us. Well, that changed my view, not only of the new covenant, but also of all the Old Testament covenants from Genesis 3 onward. And although I was dreading the prospect of rewriting six addresses, it actually turned out to be one of the most blessed weeks of work in my life, as this gospel key opened up the grace of God in these Old Testament covenants in a way I'd never seen before. I went to South Africa with the message of God's unchanging covenant grace in both testaments and God richly blessed the messages. I hope you'll be blessed too as we briefly survey what God taught me that week in sins. Before we examine these old covenant promises though, here's a definition of a divine covenant. A divine covenant is a relationship initiated and imposed by a superior with life or death consequences. Now, there are basically two kinds of divine covenants in the Bible. In the covenant of works, then wages, God said to Adam in Genesis 2, If you do this work, then I'll give you these wages. Work, 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 then wages. In contrast, in the covenant of grace, then gratitude, God said, here's a great gift for you. Please take it and enjoy it. And here's how to show your gratitude. It's gift, then gratitude. The covenants with post-fall Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses and David were administrations or revelations of the one divine covenant of grace. The promises of the covenant of grace were represented in the form of these covenants. Thus, when Jeremiah prophesied a new covenant, he was not prophesying a new covenant with new parties, new terms, new promises. He was prophesying a new administration of the one covenant of grace. The contrast is not with the old covenant of works, but with the older administrations or revelations of the one covenant of grace, especially the Mosaic administration of it. Yes, the Mosaic covenant was an administration of the covenant of grace. Now, hang in there. We'll get to this. You might wonder, why didn't God reveal his covenant of grace all at once? Why did he do it in installments? Well, Remember that God was working to bring fallen and foolish sinners back into relationship with him. If he revealed the bright light of his grace all at once, he he would have blinded or overwhelmed his creatures. But as a wise teacher, he revealed his covenant of grace bit by bit in phases. Simple truths followed by the more complex. And he did this through these Old Testament covenants. These covenants gradually revealed, pictured, and advanced the covenant of grace. As Westminster Confession of Faith puts it, they administered the covenant of grace. They brought it to humanity. Now, we're going to study the following Old Testament covenants in the next few moments. The covenant with Adam, which I call the covenant of the defeated serpent. That's what we find in Genesis 3.15. The covenant with Noah, which I call the covenant of the disarmed bow. Which we'll find in Genesis eight through nine. The covenant with Abraham, or in other words the covenant of the knife, Genesis twelve through seventeen. The covenant with Moses, that's found in Exodus nineteen, the covenant of Lamb and Law is what I call that. Then there's a the covenant with David in Second Samuel seven, the covenant of the everlasting king, and then there's the promise and fulfillment of the new covenant in Jeremiah. Now, we'll be looking at six features these covenants have in common. Six features or characteristics that reveal and administer the covenant of grace. Now, some features are more obvious in some covenants than others, and some are implicit rather than explicit. The first common feature is sin. The first thing we notice about these covenant promises is that they take place in the context of sin. Emphasizing that God's mercy, not human merit is the bedrock foundation of his covenant dealings with humanity. Think of the covenant of the defeated serpent. This isn't the time or place to prove that the arrangements in Genesis 3, 14 through 15, were covenantal in nature. I'd refer you to uh, O. Robertson's Christ of the Covenants for a convincing argument in favour of this idea. But to put it simply, just as a story about a mom and dad and their kids is a story about a family, even if the word family never appears... So this relationship, initiated and imposed by a superior with life or death consequences, is a covenant, even if the word covenant doesn't appear. And the covenant with Adam was announced immediately after the first sin of our first parents. Instead of walking away from this disaster, and instead of wiping out the sinful world and its sinful inhabitants, God promised or covenanted to reverse the effects of this first sin and restore His perfect order. In the covenant of the disarmed bull, God announced this covenant with Noah immediately after the judgment of a worldwide deluge, just before Noah fell into the most degrading sins and in the full knowledge of the evil heart of man. Yet, in his grace and mercy, God promised that he would never drown the whole world again. He promised that he would not deal with human life on this earth according to their sins. The covenant of the knife, their covenant with Abraham, with its promise of a miraculous son, was announced by God even when he knew that Abraham would so soon turn his back on the divine promise and seek a son by sinful means. The covenant of lamb and law. God announced the covenant with Moses not long after Israel had sinned in connection with both bread and water, and a short time before Israel sinned with the golden calf. The covenant of the everlasting king, that's the covenant with David, was announced with God's full knowledge that David would soon commit adultery and murder. David himself saw the grace of God in this when on his deathbed he reflected on how his sins had shattered his own family. And yet, God's promises, God's covenant promises remained sure. Then in the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, we find a prediction of a new covenant for Israel on the eve of their exile in Babylon on account of their sins especially the sins of their covenant breaking Jesus himself announced the fulfillment of the new covenant on the eve of his exile for the sins of his own spiritual Israel so in summary one of the essential truths revealed by these old testament covenant promises is that god is gracious that God covenants with men and women, not according to their merits, but according to his mercy. God met every broken promise of humanity with a new promise of grace from heaven. So, these covenants have in common sin. Secondly, let's look at their common starting point. We have gained many insights into the biblical covenants by the discovery of covenant documents from biblical times and cultures. As we noted um, in earlier in Jesus in Every Page, these covenants have been called suzerain-vassal treaties. The big king, a suzerain, detailed all he had done for the little king, a vassal, before setting out rules to ensure the relationship between them would be happy and healthy. The document usually concluded with the suzerain encouraging the vassal to thankful obedience with promises of reward and threats for disobedience. This type of suzerain-vassal treaty is seen to greater or lesser degrees in God's Old Testament covenants where God is the suzerain and humanity is the vassal. God designs and dictates the terms of the covenant. It's not a mutual agreement, but a sovereign imposition which humanity rejects at its peril. It is God, not man, who initiates it. And God's benevolence is stated before stipulating what God expects in grateful response. The covenant of the defeated serpent, for example. There God sovereignly announced the terms of this covenant when he came into the Garden of Eden after our first parent's first sin. Adam and Eve were in no position to bargain. God took the initiative, however, and promised grace to them when they had nothing to give him. Notice the great, I will, as he stepped in to break up this unholy friendship between the devil and humanity. I will put enmity. The covenant of the disarmed bow, the covenant with Noah, begins, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you. And if you look at this and the surrounding verses, you see again and again the divine initiative underlined. I will establish, I make, I set, I will remember, I have established. As in all the covenants between God and man, God is the giver and man the receiver. The covenant of the knife. In the covenant with Abraham, God took the initiative in the midst of Abraham's fears and impotence. Fear not, Abram, later Abraham. I am thy shield. And thy exceeding great reward. God made the promises, and Abraham received and believed them. What about the covenant of Lamb and Law? Well, Moses was confronted with God's sovereign initiative and success before he heard any words of law. You have seen what I did. There are divine deeds. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings. There's divine deliverance. How I bore you in eagles' wings and brought you to myself. There's a divine destination. Now, therefore. Look it up, Exodus 19, verse 4 and following. Also, the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 begin not with human effort, but with the divine initiative. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Covenant of the Everlasting King, that's the covenant with David, well, that kind of came closest to a divine human negotiation or deal. David came with a proposal to God to build him a house, but God swept David's initiative and ideas aside and imposed his own arrangement, which far transcended anything David had in mind. Instead of David's idea of building a temporary, physical house for God, God would build David an everlasting house, meaning a dynasty for his own glory and the good of humanity. The new covenant, well, to see the divine initiative in the new covenant promised by Jeremiah, we need only quote Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And this divine initiative is seen in an unparalleled way when Jesus fulfilled the new covenant promise. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. In summary, one of the essential principles revealed by these covenants is that God takes the sovereign initiative in His covenant dealings with men and women. He took the first step toward mankind in His weakness and helplessness. Indeed, He took the ultimate step. Of self-sacrifice. And that brings us on to the sacrifice, the third common feature of the covenants. God's covenants are, are usually instituted with bloodshed, indicating the life or death seriousness of the relationship. Think of the covenant of the defeated serpent. That covenant with Adam promises a bruising or crushing of the devil's head and this promise of bloodshed is immediately followed by the killing of animals to provide coats for Adam and Eve, and the practice of divinely approved sacrifice is seen in the very next chapter. In the covenant of the disarmed bow, Noah and his family began life in a fresh new world with fresh covenant promises and multiple sacrifices. In the covenant of the knife, we see the same thing. To ratify a covenant... In these days, it was very customary for the contracting parties in an agreement to walk between the pieces of the slain animals. When the parties walked between the pieces, they were basically saying that if they failed to keep their word, they deserved the same fate as the animals, to be torn in pieces. And in the covenant with Abram, God alone, in a theophany, literally a God appearance of smoke and fire, God alone walked between the pieces. God alone ratified the covenant. God alone accepted all the covenant obligations. God alone took upon him the solemn oaths and imprecations should he fail. And as we'll see, there was a further cutting and sacrifice of human blood when God gave Abraham the additional and more permanent covenant sign of circumcision after his sin with Hagar. The covenant of Lamb and Law, while the Ten Commandments conclude with a reference to sacrifice, Pages and pages of law concerning sacrifice follow the Ten Commandments. The Mosaic Covenant inauguration was concluded in Exodus 24 by Moses sprinkling them with the blood of the covenant. In fact, it can be argued that the whole Mosaic Covenant began with the Passover lamb. In the covenant of the everlasting king, well, if the Davidic king sinned, God promised their blood would have to be shed at the hands of other men. The sacrifice of their blood would again underline the life or death nature of divine covenants and the connection between sin and bloodshed. The new covenant, well, the prediction of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 doesn't have any explicit sacrificial reference. But when Jesus announced his fulfillment of the new covenant, the sacrificial emphasis was made crystal clear. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Which is shed for you. In summary, one of the essential truths revealed by these covenants is that God requires sacrificial blood to atone for sin, and that such sacrifice was at the foundation of covenant relationships. These Old Testament covenants revealed and advanced the covenant of grace, in which God not only declared the requirement of sacrifice, but also provided it. Indeed, he became it. Fourth mark of these covenants, fourth common feature, is this speech. Although the covenants were multifaceted, one dominant truth was usually communicated, which met a particular need at that time. In the covenant with defeated Adam, the dominant truth was victory. Despite the opposition and minor triumphs of the devil, God would ensure ultimate victory over him and his seed. The covenant of the disarmed bow? Well, after God's declaration of war on the world and the tumult of the worldwide flood, God promised peace. He assured nervous Noah that he would provide a relatively peaceful and predictable environment. The covenant of the knife? Since Abram's great need was a son, Abram was promised a seed as numerous as the stars of heaven and a land where they would live. The covenant of lamb and law, there Moses was facing a seemingly impossible task. The great exodus redemption had left him as leader of an unruly and disorganized multitude. Authoritative law was the need, and God's law Was the provision. In the covenant of the everlasting king, God chose David to be his king over Israel. As David well knew, however, kings and kingdoms came and went all the time. Therefore, God promised David an everlasting king and an everlasting kingdom. As the new covenant was announced in the context of judgment for Israel's sin, it promised forgiveness and cleansing. When Jesus announced the fulfillment of the new covenant, he also connected it with the remission of sins. So, the essential themes of these Old Testament covenants were victory, peace, a son, obedience, a king, and forgiveness. These Old Testament covenants revealed and advanced the covenant of grace in which Jesus conquers the devil, Jesus is our peace. Jesus is the promised son. Jesus secures obedience to God. Jesus is the everlasting king. And Jesus forgives our sins by his blood. Fifth is the sign. The fifth common feature of these covenants is that they all have a covenant sign. God not only gave word promises in these covenants, he also gave picture promises, which served as simpler and more permanent reminders of the divine covenant. To underline the promise of victory to Adam, Adam was given the covenant sign of a disgraced and defeated serpent, cursed above all animals, in the lowest place, eating dust. To emphasise the promise of peace to Noah, he was given the covenant seal of the beautiful, storm-concluding rainbow. To help Abram remember the promise of a son, he was given the sign of circumcision, a sign engraved in his own flesh. What a reminder, not only of the blood-filled consequences of his sin, but also of God's commitment to fulfill his covenant promises through the physical seed of Abraham. Moses, he was given two covenant signs, the Lamb and the Law. It's vital to note the order. The Lamb came before the Law. Passover night in Egypt came before the chiselling of the Law at Mount Sinai. The first, revealing of God's provision, and the second, how God's people should respond to that provision. The crown on David's head reminded him and all Israel of God's promise of an everlasting king and kingdom. The new covenant signs are the bread and the wine, signifying the body and blood given to secure our forgiveness. So the covenant signs accompanied and confirmed the verbal promises. The defeated snake promised the future seeds victory over the devil. The rainbow promised a seed who would make peace with God. The knife of circumcision promised a seed from the line of Abraham. The lamb and the law promised a seed who would redeem and bring into holy relationship with God. The crown promised the seeds everlasting throne and rule. The bread and wine promised forgiveness through the seed's broken body and shed blood. The last common feature we want to look at is the scope. Um, we ask here, who were the beneficiaries? Who, who came within the scope of these covenants? And the answer, as we'll see, is that the covenants had a double scope. They were external, physical, and non-redemptive blessings for a great many, and in some cases, for all humanity. And there were internal, spiritual, and redemptive blessings for those who, by faith, saw through the externals of the covenants to the spiritual realities they represented. Let's go through them again and see that. Let's start with the covenant of the defeated serpent. I want you to imagine something. Imagine a large cathedral with no windows and no doors. Inside this black and bleak building is fallen humanity. In mercy, God cuts a small snake-shaped window in one wall to let in a little light from the covenant of grace. Everyone inside benefited from the light, just as all humanity benefited from God's curse on the dangerous snake. However, though many just admire the shape of the window and enjoy the natural light that comes through it, Together with its natural benefits, others look through the window by faith and see a welcome spiritual reality shining brightly through it, the defeated devil of the covenant of grace. The covenant of the disarmed bow. In this covenant with Noah, God basically cut another cathedral window, this time rainbow shaped. Just as everyone inside gets more light, so everyone profits from the promised benefits of a generally stable cycle of seasons. Again, some just take the physical light and climatic benefits and some just admire the window. Others, however, look through the window by faith and see a more wonderful spiritual reality shining brightly through it, a peacemaking and pacified God. Some years later, God cut a knife-shaped window. This time, the light that shines through is. Confined to the natural descendants of Abraham and those associated with him by circumcision of the male family members. All the natural descendants of Abraham benefit from God's promises of seed and land, together with his promise to bless and curse other nations according to their treatment of Abraham and his descendants. Again, some just take the benefits of the natural light. Some just admire the window. Others, however, look through the window by faith and see the provision of a saviour physically descended from Abraham who would be cut off for sin to ensure that his people would be cut off from their sin. In the covenant of lamb and law, God cut two more windows just for Israel one, lamb sh- one was lamb shaped and the other scroll shaped, the law. All in Israel reap national and physical benefits from God's redemption of the nation from Egypt. His special relationship with that nation and his promised blessings upon their obedience also benefit all. Again, though, some just take the benefits of that natural light, these non-redemptive blessings. Some just admire the lamb and scroll shaped windows. Others, however, look through the windows by faith and see... Personal, spiritual, and redemptive blessings shining brightly through them. The crown shaped window, representing God's special relationship to the Davidic monarchy, brought many external, though non redemptive blessings to Israel. Again, some just take the benefits of the natural light, and some just admire the window. Others, however, look through the window by faith and see something far better and higher shining brightly through it the divine provision of a son of David who would spiritually deliver and internally rule them forever. The new covenant. Well, in the new covenant, God punched huge holes all over the cathedral walls in order to flood in unprecedented light from the covenant of grace. Some holes are shaped like loaves of broken bread and cups of red wine, the Lord's Supper. There are also fountain-shaped holes, baptism. These New Testament signs of the covenant of grace declare the grace of the gospel to all nations, not just Israel. And they do so in an unparalleled manner. It's as if God says, I cannot make my provision of an unconditional salvation any clearer than this. Though some still prefer the shadows, and some still simply admire the windows, Innumerable sin-darkened souls flock to the light coming through the new sign windows and trace the new covenant signs of bread and wine to what they signify, a crucified saviour, bleeding, bruised and broken for sin and for sinners. And they trace the new covenant sign of baptismal water to what it signifies, forgiveness and cleansing from sin. Those who sit in darkness see a great light. We await one final development in the unfolding plan of God, the return of Jesus for his people. Then he will demolish the cathedral, its walls and windows. I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Then the essence of the covenant of grace will be fully realized and experienced. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Then we will hear the divine voice say forever, I will be his God, and he will. Shall be my son. So the covenants reveal God's wide scope and his widespread offer of covenant benefits, even though comparatively few actually use the covenant benefits in the right way to believe in the Christ of the covenants. Well, at this point, you're probably asking, as I did, well, if there's so much that's old. In the New Covenant, what's new? If there's so much continuity between the Old and New Covenants, is there much that's new at all? Well, the New Covenant exceeds the Old Covenant, and it does so in the following ways, very briefly. First of all, in the New Covenant, there's a new universality. From Abraham on, God's covenants had been narrowed down to Abraham's descendants, then to Israel, Then to David's sons for Israel's benefit. But in the new covenant there is a new international emphasis. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Secondly, there's a new personality. In the old administrations of the covenant of grace, Jesus and his grace were promised and pictured. In the new covenant, Jesus is fully and personally present. The pictures and ceremonies are gone, and the Jesus of the pictures and ceremonies is present. It's the difference, really, between reading a biography of a person and actually meeting the person. In the New Covenant, the words on the page come alive. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Third, there's a new clarity. When we see a shadow coming around a corner, we have a, a sort of rough idea of what's casting the shadow. However, sometimes the reality can be quite different. The shadow reveals, but the shadow also obscures. In the New Covenant, Jesus has come round the corner and we see him far more clearly. Shadows give way to sunshine. Prophecy gives way to fulfilment. Type gives way to antitype. And symbols give way to reality. There's a new clarity. Fourthly, there's a new immediacy. When God made the Old Testament covenants, he usually made them with one person who represented many more people. We might call that a, that representative a steward, one through whom God administered the covenant. God dealt with his people and spoke to them through this covenant head or mediator. However, in the new covenant, all sinful and imperfect human intermediaries are swept aside and the covenant of grace is administered directly and immediately by Jesus. He promises, I will be your prophet, priest, king, and husband. He acts as the one for the many. Fifth, there's a new effectiveness, a new efficacy. Though some, perhaps many, were saved under the older promises and pictures of the covenant of grace, one thing is sure, far more are saved in the new covenant phase of the covenant of grace. So, Jeremiah in chapter 31 isn't contrasting a new covenant of grace with an old covenant of works. He's contrasting a new and more effective presentation of the covenant of grace with an older but less effective presentation of the same covenant of grace. Sixthly, there's a new spirituality, isn't that Sixthly? One, two, three, four, five, six, yes, Sixthly. A new spirituality. Previous administrations of the covenant of grace, especially the Mosaic administration, were so encumbered with external ceremonies and elements as to be comparatively carnal. The new covenant is more spiritual, more focused on the inward life. The covenants in both testaments reveal a God who desires relationship with his people, a desire that finds ultimate spiritual satisfaction only through Jesus Christ. And lastly, there's a new finality. The presentations of the covenant of grace through the many covenants of the Old Testament were preparatory and temporary. The new covenant is the final presentation of the covenant of grace in this present world. It will give way only to the eternal enjoyment of the covenant relationship in the new heaven and new earth. And that's what covenant is all about, relationship. All the old covenants, all the Old Testament covenants consistently present a God who seeks relationship with fallen sinners. The New covenant promises also have relationship at their very core. Jeremiah conveyed God's words, "I will be their God, and they shall be my people." No more shall every man teach his neighbour and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. And Jesus was the fulfilment of this covenant promise. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He brings his people into a saving relationship with God and he will ultimately perfect that relationship too. As the closing words of Revelation tell us, Behold, The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them, and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Music